We're going to read from the Gospel according to Matthew today. So Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 18. If you've got a Bible, you might like to flick it open. Matthew 1, starting at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Well, good morning. I'm Jeremy, and I'm the lead pastor here at City Light. Great to have you with us and to meet in the high school over the next few weeks. As a high school teacher, yeah, I think that's worth a cheer, yeah. Um, as a high school teacher, I love coming back into a high school. And there are so many things that just, as soon as I see them or smell them, they just take me right back. And walking through the halls, I saw some signs that are obviously meant to you know, motivate kids to be more engaged with school culture. And they were just quotes from other kids at school. And one of them had in quotation marks, um, I the best thing about school is the books from the library, Dexter in year seven. And I looked at that sign and I just thought, Dexter in year seven's life just got a lot harder, didn't it? <laughs> I was some well-meaning year advisor thought this would do it, and poor Dexter has now got a target painted on his back. But it's, it's great to actually be here and to have a space where we can gather. And look, look at the, I mean, what an incredible view as well to be looking out over as we kind of gather to hear from God's Word. And, uh, and what an opportunity to gather as a church and work out if this is a space uh, that will work for us. We're a church that really are looking to connect with people, whatever your background is, whether you're religious or grew up going to church or didn't, whether you describe yourself as a follower of Jesus or someone who's actually pretty skeptical, whether you're spiritual or religious, whatever you describe yourself. We want to be a church where you can hear and understand the claims of Christianity and make a, an informed decision for yourself. And so we're here and gathering here to see whether or not this is a space that will kind of help us to that end. And so thank you for being a part of it. It is our first week and it's an experiment so that we won't nail every element and we appreciate your patience with that. But having said that, where else can you go to church and then play a game of 1v1 afterwards? So, I mean, whatever way you cut it, you're welcome. So it's going to be a great morning together and you hear from God's Word. Um, but we would love to hear from you after this week how it's gone for you because we really don't want anything to get in the way of you hearing about who Jesus is. Because like followers of Jesus for the last 2,000 years, we believe that in Jesus are the answers to the deepest questions of life, the things that really matter. And that's why we're calling this series The Way of Jesus because it's from the book of Matthew. Matthew was a follower of Jesus who thought it was important that people knew who Jesus was and why. So he wrote down a detailed account of Jesus' whole life story, from his birth through to his teachings to his death and his resurrection. 
so that people would know who Jesus is and why. And really, Matthew is answering two, two key questions, not just in this passage, but through the whole of the Gospel of Matthew. He's answering the questions, who is Jesus and why should I care? Who is Jesus and why should I care? And he's going to answer that story, he's going to answer that question rather, through the story of Jesus' birth. Now we as a culture, I guess we're not that different to other cultures in this way, that we love stories. But the thing that's worth asking is, why do we love the stories that we love? And even in particular, I don't know if this one's ever occurred to you, why do kids love scary stories? And the scarier the better. Just, just think about some of the stories that we tell our kids without really thinking through the details of it. Let's just, let's just pull one off the shelf, Hansel and Gretel. When most people think of Hansel and Gretel, you just think gingerbread house, you think kids, lollies, that kind of story. So let me just walk you through how harrowing this story actually is. For a start, the family is starving. So they are, they are completely out of food and they are dying. And like any organization, they figure, look, our resources are limited, so obviously we can only feed certain personnel. The kids kind of last one's in, first one's out. So they decide we don't have enough food for everyone, the kids have got to go. So the kids actually overhear their parents discussing that they're going to abandon their children in the woods. Okay, so just, just keep that in. That's the start of the story. And it only gets worse from there. Then because the kids hear this, they prepare for it. So they put some rocks in their pocket. Dad leads the kids out into the woods to abandon them. But the kids are clever enough to leave a trail of pebbles so that they can make their way home. They get home, and instead of the parents being like, well done, you're back. Oh, look, we made a mistake, you're back in. The parents start plotting for taking them out the second time. And this time, they lock the kids in the room so that there's no way that they can get any stones or anything. Take them out into the wood, leaves a, a trail of breadcrumbs, but the birds eat them up. And so this time, they are actually properly abandoned in a wood to die. And then it gets worse. The, the kind of eerie and spookiness of the woods is personified in a witch who eats children. And this is why the kids are already off in their kids' program, by the way, and they're not hearing stories like this. But then the, the witch then plots to kill them, takes them back to, they find the gingerbread house, they start eating, they think finally they're going to be saved, but alas, they're going to be eaten by the witch. She traps them, tells them she's going to do that, and eventually they outsmart her and push her into the oven. They take her, her jewels or whatever it is, the treasure, and back to the house, and then all's forgiven. The parents are like, actually, you kids are pretty useful now that you've brought back all this cash, let's live together in harmony. And that is a great kid's story, apparently. Now, why would we tell these stories to our kids? Because it's not just those, I mean, even, like, even modern ones, Harry Potter and the like, they are, if you get into them, they are terrifying stories. Why would we tell our kids stories in order to make them afraid? But then I stumbled across a quote this week that probably explains it a little bit better than I could. See, we don't really tell our kids stories to make them afraid, do we? Look at what G.K. Chesterton says. He was a journalist and author himself, and he said, fairy tales then are not responsible for producing in children fear or any of the shapes of fear. Fairy tales do not give the child the idea of the evil or the ugly. That is in the child already, because it is in the world already. Fairy tales do not give the child his first idea of a monster. What fairy tales give the child is his first clear idea of the possible defeat of a monster. The baby has known the dragon intimately ever since he had an imagination. What the fairy tale provides for him is a St. George to kill the dragon. That's why we tell them scary stories, and the scarier the better. Because the truth that is behind it is that evil can be overcome by good. 
And that's why we love scary stories even as adults. That's why we love horror films generally, the ones where the good guy wins in the end or the, the heroine wins in the end, because we love a story that ends with evil being overcome by good. We love stories that answer our deepest questions and fears. So what relevance does Jesus' story have to ours? I'll put to you that the story of Jesus answers our deepest questions and our deepest fears. The reason Jesus' story is relevant to you is not because it's true. There are lots of true stories out there that don't really matter. The reason Jesus' story matters is because it answers the deepest questions of life. What is life about? Why am I so dissatisfied? Why do I do things that I don't like? Why am I so afraid of amounting to nothing? Why do I fear abandonment? And on and on and on. All of these deep and profound questions are answered in the story of Jesus. And so my prayer is that as we open this historical account of Jesus, that it won't just be an, another historical story, but we will see that this is the story beneath all the stories because it answers the questions and beneath all the questions. The Jesus answer to life, meaning, death, and everything in between is the deep answer that we are looking for. And so I'm going to pray that as we open up to Matthew chapter 1, that we would see that very thing in God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are the ultimate author and storyteller. That you are the one who provides the deepest answers to our deepest questions. And we pray that as we open your Word, we would see afresh the life of Jesus, our King and Saviour, and come to know deeply the truth of your word, that you love us, that you forgive us, and then in Jesus you make us new. Amen. Well, the first line of Matthew's account starts in this way. Matthew 1.1, we read this. It will come up on the screen for you. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew would have been a great HSC student because he starts with a topic sentence. He lays out the whole essay right at the beginning. He says, this is what it's about. This is the genealogy, the beginning, the origin story of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But the thing that's odd about the introduction is that for a modern reader, you would hear that and assume a couple of things. One, you would assume that Jesus' last name was Christ. Two, you would assume that his dad's name was David and that his granddad's name was Abraham. The problem is all three of those things are wrong. Now for us, we would read it that way because that's how we'd introduce someone. But for the Jewish reader, it makes a lot of sense. The first thing is that they would have read the word Christ and been like, wow, Jesus Christ, that's a massive claim. Because for them, that wasn't just an idle word or a surname. For them... That was a word that had significant meaning. The Christ was the king who was promised to save his people. This was the person that the Jewish people had been waiting for for 400 years. It's not Jesus' surname. Jesus would have been known as Jesus by Joseph because his dad's name was Joseph. And so to put Christ after his name is to make a huge claim about who Jesus is. That he is this king that the Jewish people have been waiting for. And that's why it matters what happens next, because what he then says is that he's a son of David. Now, David, for the Jewish people, was like their greatest king. We don't really, in our culture, we don't have an equivalent. I don't know, for, for some people of a certain generation, maybe John Howard as like the, you know, the one over the golden years, but we don't really, we don't have an equivalent figure to someone like David for the Jewish people. He was their greatest all-time king. 
the one who expanded their borders further than anyone else had and established them as the power in the ancient Near East. And so for them, they knew that this Christ, this king who was to come, was going to be a descendant of David. And not only that, but just calling him a son of Abraham is that he's part of the Jewish people. Now here's a fact for you, that almost half the world's population, so Muslim, Jewish, Christian, would claim some kind of either spiritual or racial lineage to Abraham. But here, the son of Abraham was the sign that he was a Jewish person, that he was descended from David, and that he claimed to be the Christ. And all of this matters because our lineage matters, doesn't it? How many of us here have either actually followed through and done it, or at least when you saw the ad thought, that would be a good idea, when you saw an Ancestry.com ad? Most of us at some point or another have thought, we don't even know what it is that we're actually looking for, but you just, you'd like to know what's back there, right? What's actually in there? Well, I was talking to a friend recently whose family member decided to follow through and did a deep dive on their family history and actually found out that she wasn't a sister but a half-sister. And now that, was, that obviously sent shockwaves through the family. There were some things that it explained and some things that it brought up new questions. But no doubt, once that happened, the whole family took a sudden interest in their family tree. Now you think, why? I mean, it doesn't really, in terms of what happens tomorrow, it doesn't change a lot, does it? There's not a lot that changes from day to day if your, if your family tree changes. But it tells you something about yourself. The reason we want to know it is because you're like, maybe this would explain something about me that I don't understand yet. Or maybe it would explain something about what I'm going to be like. Whatever it is, we kind of want to know. And when it comes to Jesus, they want to know what his family tree is because they want to know if you claim to be the Christ you better have the credentials to back it up. And so that's why in the next section, and we won't read it through altogether, but that's why Matthew goes into a long chain of the family history of Jesus so that for the Jewish reader in the ancient Near East, they'll be like, okay, he's got the credentials at least. He may be this Christ, this King who has come. And so that explains the first part of the Gospel of Matthew. But then the story gets a little bit weird, doesn't it? I don't know if you noticed it in the reading that Anna read out just before. Look what happens in Matthew 1, 18 to 22. It says, Now the birth of Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord God had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew gives us a little section break where he tells us he's about to explain how Jesus was born. Mary, his mom, was engaged to Joseph, but before they got married and consummated the marriage, Mary is pregnant. Joseph is a gentleman when he finds out, doesn't want to publicly shame her. He figures that obviously she's had an affair or something has gone on. And so he plans to separate quietly so as to not cause a big fuss publicly. And while he's thinking about this, God tells him that it's not an ordinary birth, that this is a miraculous birth, a virgin birth. You may have, even if you didn't have a church background, you may have heard of this kind of story before. You may have heard of it if you've seen any of uh, Ricky Gervais' sort of live sketches on it. 
and he goes to town on this particular tract of scripture, describing it as kind of a situation, which I guess is imaginable, that two teenagers basically got knocked up and then came up, they had to come up with a story to tell their parents about what happened so that they wouldn't get busted. And so they come up with, you know, on the spot they panic and just say, we're having the son of God. Right? And you're like, look, in some ways, I mean, it's, it's funny because it's something you can really dive into and go to town on. But to modern ears, it probably sounds a little bit, well, it does sound more plausible than God being born a human and through a virgin birth. But here's something to ponder. If this weren't true, why would Matthew include it in here? And of course, the first thought would be, well, if you're going to claim that Jesus is the Son of God, this Christ, this amazing you know, God-man, why not give him some kind of a mystical, magical birth story? But here's the weird thing. No one in the ancient Near East, these Jewish readers, they expected the family tree. They expected that he would be a son of David. What they didn't expect was a virgin birth. No one was looking for that. We have no historical evidence that anyone at that time was expecting that when this Christ came, and there was a lot written about this Christ, no one was expecting that he'd come by virgin birth. Not only that, but the only stories that included even something like this kind of virgin birth were non-Jewish or pagan stories, which would have made Jewish readers less likely to believe it. So if Matthew was making this up, what would be the possible motivation for saying this to his Jewish readers? given that it would make them disinclined to believe it. Think of it like this. If you got busted, and you were busted for theft and caught by police officers, and you made up a story that was going to be your alibi, and in the details of that story, you basically said that you were, you were partying with their senior officer. Now, if you did that, and that was false, you are now giving them just another reason to disbelieve you. Why would you do that if you, were trying to get out, if you were trying to make something up and have someone believe you? If Matthew really wanted this story to be believed because it was made up and he was trying to make his friend Jesus sound like some incredible martyr or hero, this wouldn't be the detail that he'd include. And so the question is, why is it in there? Well, it's in there most likely because it just happened. And when people record genuine eyewitness accounts, they include details that really don't add anything necessarily to the story. If you get a genuine eyewitness account of an event, a crime or an incident, people will always include details that stuck out to them for some reason and they don't really add to the story or the direction of it, but they just include it because it's what they remembered. And it adds weight here to the fact that this was an eyewitness account and that he knew about it and that's why he put it in there. And so it goes on, he goes on to explain the main point about who Jesus is. Not that he had some mystical birth, but that he's the Christ. And not only that, but he came for a specific purpose. Look at what it says in Matthew 121. It says, She, Mary, will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This one sentence is crucial to understanding who Jesus actually is and what he came to do. It's not fair to say, I think Jesus was a great teacher. I think Jesus came to give moral lessons. Because if Jesus said why he came, that trumps any of our opinions about why he may or may not have come. And Matthew here is recorded that we are told here that Jesus came to save people from their sins. That is the, the main reason that he came. And I believe that whether you are skeptical or religious or spiritual or whatever, 
that every single person deep down is looking to be saved from something. I haven't met anyone else, anyone yet, who believes that their lifestyle is entirely complete, who would stand there confidently and be able to say, I've got it all sorted out. I've got it together. Most of us feel like there is something in the way of us either living our fullest life or having found what life is actually really about. And not only that, I think everyone has some idea of the two poles of life that you live between. So everyone has some idea of what the worst possible outcome of my life could be and what the best possible outcome of my life could be. And some of us have at least some idea of where we would map ourselves in between those two poles. That we're either sliding down to our version of what you would call hell or sliding up to our version of what you would call heaven. And everybody lives somewhere between their own personal hell and personal heaven. For some, hell is being single and heaven is being married. And you are somewhere along that journey between hell and heaven. For some, hell is being an unsuccessful nobody and heaven is living an accomplished life that is recognized and they're somewhere between those two poles. For some, hell is being poor, heaven is being rich. For some, hell is being tied down with responsibility and boredom and heaven is freedom and adventure and they're somewhere between those two. I could go on and on and on, but everyone I think has some version of hell and heaven and therefore everyone has someone or something that they think will save them, that will take them from one to the other. If hell is singleness and heaven is marriage, then along comes the one. If hell is being unsuccessful, then along comes the opportunity of a lifetime or the person with the contacts who can get me in. If hell is political powerlessness, then someone comes along to restore my people group to a position of prominence and power, the one. The claim of Jesus is that what we really need to be saved from is what he calls sin. That Jesus came to be a real saviour who really can save and saves us from sin. So what is sin in the scripture, in scriptures in the Bible? Sin is when we say to God, look, God, thank you for life and everything, but I will take it from here. Whether that's to say, look, there really is no God. I, 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 don't, I wouldn't hold that there's any knowable being above. Or whether it's to say, I do, but I think I kind of know how to live my life best. Whichever way it is, all of us have done it and said, look, I will live my life as I determine. And when we do that, there's a separation between us and our maker. And it creates a rift in the world. And the Bible says that this is why death has entered into human experience. It's an unnatural intruder. It's not how things were meant to be. And it should be a reminder to us as we look around. I mean, after the year we've had, and we've been so sheltered in Sydney and Australia from what's happening in the world in this pandemic, but after the, after the year that's been, it is obvious that things are not the way they're meant to be. And it's meant to be a clue to us that there has been a rupture in our relationship with God. If you walked through a city at night and suddenly all of the lights went out, you would know that, something, that a rupture had taken place in a power plant somewhere or something had gone on. You would know that things were not right. In the same way, death is a reminder to us that the lights shouldn't go out, that something has gone deeply and tragically wrong. And the Bible says it's sin and that Jesus has come to solve it and to bring us back in a relationship with God, to repair that relationship. And he also argues that this is what we really need to be saved from. That beneath our desires to be saved from some version of our own personal hell and heaven, 
There is an actual real hell and heaven that we need real saving from, and Jesus can do it. And this is what we really need, and this is what we are longing for, and that this is at the bottom of our deepest desires. We need to be reconnected with our God. We need that relationship repaired, and Jesus claims that he can do it. But of course, you might say, look, if that were really true, if Jesus' offer is free and good, the answer to all of our deepest questions, blah, 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 why isn't everyone about it? I mean, surely if that's who Jesus really is, the Savior, the Messiah, everyone would believe in him. But it's also the case, isn't it, that we can't always see what's good for us, can we? You can think of it in this way. If you sit down a three-year-old and say to them, you can have a chocolate, you can have a check for a million dollars. I get, well, I don't know. I haven't tried it yet. We'll see. Maybe you could try it today. But I suspect most kids would go for the chocolate over the check. The reason being, one satisfies an obvious and immediate need, and the other one is just too abstract to kind of get your head around to see how that could benefit me in any significant way. Now, of course, you could sit there and reason with the child. I dare you to try and reason with the child. You could sit there and try and reason with the child and explain to them, hey, if you actually bank this check and then you set up an account and all of that, you can have many chocolate bars. They'll be like, thanks, but no thanks. I'll take the chocolate bar and that's it and they're away. Now, it may be the case for you right now that Jesus seems too abstract a solution to really be the answer. But isn't it at least plausible as you look at what the Bible has to say about who he is, that he could well be. I mean, think about it for a moment. What is at the bottom of our desires? What is at the bottom of a desire for a marriage partner? We want acceptance and love that cannot be revoked. And that's what Jesus claims to offer, God's love towards you in him. What is at the bottom of the desire for success? We want to be honored. And this is what Jesus brings and for free... from nothing that we have merited or done? What is it the desire, at the bottom of the desire for political power? We want to know that me and the people that I love will be safe. And Jesus offers even safety from death, life eternal in him. These things we want are right desires, but the solution isn't deep enough to actually satisfy them. And that's why so many times in life, we get the thing that we've been longing for for so long, and the moment we get it, it's like it evaporates in our hands. Our desires often just don't go deep enough. C.S. Lewis, the author of uh, the Narnia t- uh, Chronicles, put it in this way. He said, It would seem that God finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The claim of Matthew is that Jesus is the Christ and he came to save us from our sins. In answer to the question, who is Jesus and why should I care? He is the Christ who has come to save us and save us completely. And if you're here and kind of skeptical, I don't expect that at the end of this time that's going to be enough to sort of change your perspective on Jesus. But I just encourage you as we dive into the Gospel of Matthew to come back week after week while we're here at the school and then when we're back at the building to see that the claims of Jesus are not just airy-fairy sentimentality, but real answers to the deepest desires of our heart. And so I'd encourage you to keep coming back. And if you are here and a follower of Jesus, my prayer is that you would see Jesus afresh in the Gospel of Matthew. That even if you've been a follower of Jesus since way back when, 
that you were saved even as a kid, you can't remember a time when you didn't follow Jesus, that you would see him anew as king and friend, as God, man, as the only one who can do and say the things that Jesus did and said, and the only one who can save you completely, that you would see that Jesus is the one. Let me kind of round up with this. I watched this weekend for the first time Titanic. Heard of it? It's, yeah, it's a little, it's a little, art, little, little known art house sort of indie flick, but I'm, kind of, um, I'm pretty in with that stuff. So 24 years late to the game, I finally watched Titanic. And I do have some questions about the film. Uh, I do have some questions about, if you've seen it, why it is that they let her onto the ship when she wasn't going to tell them where the, the thing that, that... You know, I can spoil that, right? It's been 24 years. They're looking for the diamond. She's not even going to tell them where it is. I don't know what... Yeah, exactly, right? I don't even know why that kind of happens. But anyway, it's a great story to dive into. But there's a, there's a scene sort of towards the end. So the story goes, if you're not familiar with it, welcome. Um, but there's a scene towards the end of it where she... So she's got on the ship. She's engaged to this horrible, wealthy man. Her family's gone poor, so her mum's putting pressure on her to marry this guy because it's going to secure the family fortune for a million generations. She gets on the ship. She's terribly unhappy. She's around all these stuffy, aristocratic, pompous people who are boring and self-indulgent. And then she meets Jack, the guy who got his way onto the ship through a poker game, won some tickets, kind of smuggled his way onto the ship. And he gets there, and he's this free spirit who just lives life day by day, and he, just, he rocks the world of the aristocracy. They just can't get their head around this guy. And she, he completely blows her mind, wins her over, and uh, yeah, again, to spoil it, they end up getting together. And towards the end, also, this isn't a spoiler, the ship does sink, and so everyone's lives are imperiled, and he, in a way, saves her life. And she sums up the whole story by saying this, He saved me in every way a person can be saved. He saved me in every way a person can be saved. That is, not only preserving her life, but actually gave her a new path and understanding of life and meaning and happiness. Saved her completely. Soul, mind, body, the whole thing. Saved her completely. And the whole thing of this romance is what you might call apocalyptic romance. The idea that you could meet one person who would save you completely. The problem with it is... That works only in movies. You can't meet a human person who is going to save you with God-sized salvation. And if you put that kind of pressure on someone, you will absolutely destroy them and crush them. The truth is that Matthew 1 says that Jesus came to save us from our sins. He is the only one who can save us completely. And not just for pie in the sky when you die, but to give you purpose and meaning now so that you would know what life is about. And so my prayer is that if you are a follower of Jesus, that you would be all in. Because Jesus didn't halfway save you so that you might halfway follow him. And if you feel like after 2020 you are, just, you are wobbling in your faith, that 2021 might be the year where you go all in for Jesus, knowing that at the cross he went all in for you and loved you completely and saved you completely. May this be the year where we are all in for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the gospel, the greatest story ever ever told. Father, we praise you that all over the world, in different countries, in different languages and ethnicities, the gospel is being heard and believed and is saving people. 
And so, Father, we just pray that as we open the gospel of Matthew, that you'd give us fresh eyes to see your son, Jesus, the one in whom you delight, the one whom you sent to save us from our sin, the one whom you sent to die in our place. And, Father, may it blow us away. May we not become familiar with these truths, but instead may we see that this is extraordinary. The claims of Jesus are like none other in history. And may it lead us to a deep and abiding trust in you, a love for Christ and a love for the people around us, that we might live like Christ did, that we might love our neighbor as ourselves. And Father, we just pray that we would do this not for our sake or for our glory, but for your glory alone. Amen.